night, and we're talking about uh, resisting temptation. Now, how many of you guys growing up, you memorized, maybe you going to church, you memorized the Lord's Prayer, and you can just quote it. If you hear someone say, our Father, who art in heaven, because you got to do the King James Version, right? Who art in heaven, and then you just, it just, it, by memory, you know it. Um, a lot of us, a lot of us know the Lord's Prayer. This is what Jesus prayed. And yet, every time I've heard the Lord's Prayer, there's been one part in it that just seemed kind of weird. Like, it just seemed like, what? Why is that in it? Does anyone here know what part of that I might be talking about? Wrong prayer. <laughs> For me, there you go, lead us not into temptation. Doesn't that seem kind of odd? Like this is what Jesus is saying to God. This is what Jesus is saying to God. Well, tonight, David, once again, there's so much repetition at the end of 1 Samuel. Once again, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. And he gets close and he makes a statement and he makes a point. Um, but he doesn't kill Saul. And so, oh, you guys are downstairs. Yep. No, you just follow the path around the basement and you will find the room they're in. Good to see you, Dustin. That's Dustin Busick. He's the Manhattan campus pastor. We got a training going on downstairs for a new church database stuff. It's been exciting here lately. But... David has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he, he's led into this opportunity, this temptation, and he doesn't take it. He actually passes the test, so to speak. Now, when we talk about temptation, we usually think of uh, an intent for evil, don't we? But it wasn't actually until the 1700s um, that we had the connotation of just being um, an evil intention attached to temptation. Um, as our primary understanding of temptation. You see the word uh, in Hebrew, there's a couple words for temptation, but one, bahan, it means refining of metals. And it's actually to test. The word tempt means to test. And so we see Jesus was tempted. Uh, we see even David tonight has some temptation in this. And there's an obvious good side to temptation. It's a testing. It's an opportunity to bring God glory, to be sanctified, to become more like him and dependent on his spirit. And not just um, stopping ourselves from falling into sin. Temptation can be a good thing when it's a testing. And so we see David being tempted tonight. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 says... Uh, that there is no temptation, there's no testing um, that we'll experience except what is common to man. But God is faithful. Uh, he'll give us a way out. He will provide a way out from that temptation. And so there's always going to be a way out when we're tempted. And tonight, as we look at um, David, he shows us what victory looks like. Because I think a lot of times when we think of temptation, we see it through the eyes of a sinner, don't we? We always see it as, well, temptation leads to evil and we're all going to make mistakes and we all fall into sin because the temptation itself is not sin, right? And temptation is an opportunity 
It's a testing. It's an opportunity, but it's not, it is not the sin. And so what does it look like through the eyes of a victor? What, is, what does temptation look like through the eyes of someone who has overcome? And David does tonight. Jesus, of course, when he was tempted, he overcame. And he gave us a whole new perspective in overcoming our temptations. So as we walk through this tonight, um, I want you to ask yourself, um, am I known? In my temptations, am I known more for overcoming them through the power of God's Spirit? Or are they simply mile markers of my past failures? Am I an overcomer? Am I an overcomer? So this is what victory looks like tonight with temptation. All right, chapter 26. Then the Zephites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of the Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So remember, David has been running. He is in the desert. He's in the mountains. And Saul just keeps on coming after him. He's about to kill him. And then David has the upper hand. And then Saul's like, oh, no, I should have never tried to kill you. I'm, I repent. I'm sorry. But then he goes crazy again, and he, he wants to kill him. And so now David's been ratted out once again in verse 1, and Saul takes 3,000 guys and pursues them. Verse 3, And Saul encamped on the hill of the Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. And David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Verse 5, and then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So Saul is in the most protected of places. Because remember, we've been here before, right? And David got up close, and, and he was able to tear part of Saul's robe, and then was like, look, I got your robe. And Saul's like, oh my gosh, you got so close, you could have killed me. And so here we are, same situation, but Saul is even more protected by his best commander and all of his other um, soldiers. Stop right there. First thing we see when it comes to victory in temptation this is the setting, but don't walk into it. Don't walk into it. Now, I, I got to just contextually, we're going to see in verse 12, God led David into this. Okay, so that makes this kind of tricky because there's a walking in that might be of God, but then there's a walking into temptation that might very well be from us. So David, he, he's... He's been here before. Saul's running after him. And Saul, he is symbolic, even though this is a historical uh, narrative that has happened. Saul's symbolic for our sin. It's just constantly chasing us. It's coming after us. It leads to death. And David is running from it. You ever feel like <laughs> you got sin chasing you? You ever feel like you got temptation chasing you? It just feels like it wears you down sometimes, doesn't it? You're like, oh my Every time I experience a little bit of resistance, a little bit of victory, then boom, it comes again. And in your moments of weakness, it comes. In your moments of strength, it comes. And we're just continuously being tested. Of course, David, he's seen all of this before. 
Now, he could have, as we're going to see, he, he goes down into camp again. He could have just retreated back into the mountains. But he sent some spies. And so he puts one little toe in the water. He says, let me, let me, let me do this again. Let me, let me walk down this path again. This is the setting for David walking into this. Now, you might argue, like I mentioned just a moment ago, what if it's God that's leading us in to this time of testing, this temptation? Well, if it's God, and, and I'll talk about how to know if it's God here in a second, but if it's God, then yeah, you walk in the power of the Spirit, and you are tested, and you resist uh, the sin. But, let's be honest. <laughs> you look at your own struggles and your own sin, how many times is it God leading us into that compared to just ourselves walking willingly into it? So let me give you an example of, an, uh, of something that God might lead you into um, that you just accept. Uh, what if he tells you to fast? And so you go all day long uh, without eating, and maybe you're praying, and it's super spiritual, and it's wonderful, but it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're hangry, and you didn't get your Snickers bar, and you then see a couple people who kind of annoy you, and, and now you're hungry, and you have the opportunity for irritability more so than ever. You've gone all day without eating. Like, you, you were in a place of hunger. This is Jesus' temptation, 40 days in, in the wilderness. He was hungry. He was famished. So that's just one you're going to take, right? You're going to say, I'm going to trust God's spirit, and I'm going to walk through this. But for some of us, we know God has led us into jobs, led us into relationships that were of him. I mean, even the church. There's temptation all over the place just being part of a local church. Temptation to, to be angry at people. Temptation to sin. Temptation to slander leadership. There's temptation all over the place. But we know God's leading us to be part of the local church. So for some of us, we just know some of the stuff that we are tempted in, we ain't, we ain't getting out of. Like you just got to stand firm and strong in it. When I, um, when I was younger, uh, about 17, I worked construction one summer out uh, by Wamego, Kansas, and we would build homes. And we were on a crew that was constantly um, doing all kinds of construction projects. And one thing we did a lot was pouring uh, concrete. We'd pour sidewalks and driveways and all kinds of stuff. And I remember um, early on, I remember looking at the concrete and seeing it dry and finding how difficult it was to tell whether like the concrete was dry or not. Now, those who are around concrete a lot, they know um, and they work with it. They know some of the shades of the color of the concrete and they can tell a little bit of whether it's dry or not. But you're bound, if you're on a concrete crew, you're bound to see either an innocent bystander or maybe even one of the crew at some point walk on some of that wet concrete thinking that it was solid and they sink in there and then it gets in their shoes. And if you ever had concrete in your shoes, it's just gritty, it's just nasty. It's like little shards of glass and a rock. It feels like it just tears up your feet. It's a pain. Nobody likes it. And of course, it wrecks the concrete. You've got to redo it a little bit. But how in the world do you know the difference between concrete that you can stand firmly on, and this is what it was made for, and this is great, this is a blessing, and concrete that is an absolute mess? Because it's still wet. Well, you see signs. 
You have markers. You have boundaries. If you see tape, if you see, if you see orange cones, if you got people saying, don't go here, you know that's where you're supposed to avoid. Now, when it comes to spiritual temptation, there are things that you can ask yourself in knowing, is God leading me into this? Like, for one, uh, does this honor God? So there's a lot of temptation that we might be experiencing in this room. And you know, if you just ask yourself that question, walking into this, whether this is God leading me or me leading myself into this, is, is this going to honor God? That might answer your question. Another one, is this building my kingdom or God's kingdom? Is this about my kingdom expanding or God's kingdom expanding? If it's yours, you might be the one walking into this willingly and God's saying, I'm not leading you there. I'm not leading you there. Listen, I love living in America. I love uh, the freedoms we have. But you want to know what? There's some downsides to the amazing amount of freedom that we have in the U.S. And that is that we have a culture of temptation. More so than ever. You can order things online. It can show up at your house in, in two days with Amazon Prime. Or next day if you want to pay a little extra. You've got the opportunity to, to enjoy anything in life that you want here in America. You can have uh, your heart's desire usually pretty quick and pretty cheap, depending on what it is. But that's not always a good thing. Like There's some other countries that are blessed in that they don't have some of the opportunity for temptation that you and I do. And so some of us, I think we're sitting, even in this room, we're sitting in a culture, an environment, your home life, your daily life, we're sitting in a culture of temptation that we willingly are walking ourselves into. Let me just give you um, a couple examples. I'll give you one that's just kind of over here. Um, you struggle with addiction, alcoholism, probably shouldn't have beer in the fridge, right? Like that, that's a culture of temptation. Now, many of us see that and we're like, eh, that's true, but that's not what I struggle with. Well, what is your struggle? What, what's your struggle? Let's just use the culture of watching TV at home and, and how we contribute to the temptations we have. Let me, let me give you one uh, here. Uh, maybe you struggle with materialism. Okay? You probably shouldn't watch HGTV all the time. And home renovation and buy this house and, and you're all of a sudden your heart's desiring it more and more and more and you've convinced yourself, I gotta have this, I gotta have that. Maybe... Maybe um, your temptation is greed. Probably shouldn't go home and watch reruns of Shark Tank. Pumping yourself up, thinking, you know what? Why am I working this 9 to 5? I could create something. I could invest money. I could do this. I'm better. I got ideas. Probably not a good thing. Maybe you got relationship issues. And God's made it clear you got relationship issues and you need to back away from dating for a while. Probably shouldn't go home and watch one of the million Bachelor, Bachelorette shows that you can watch in reality TV. All over the place. All over the place. Even something as simple as being spiritually lazy. Because I know there might be some folks in this room who, who struggle with complacency and apathy. I know I've got to make sure that my, my uh, culture, my environment, going home each night is not one of simply lounging around and rest. Because I've got a family to minister to. And if I go home and just take 30 minutes and just relax, if there were such a thing as being able to relax with a little kid in the house, I'm a sluggard. I can't, I'm like, I'm worthless for the rest of the night. I just, I can't do it. I can't minister well to my family. I can't minister well to my family. 
Sometimes the culture that you set up is not even one where you walk into sin. It's the things that you're walking out of. Again, if you're spiritually lazy, you're maybe setting up a culture at home uh, where you're walking out of opportunities to spend time in prayer. You're walking out of a disciplined Bible study time, and you're just not making those things a priority. But you've got to ask yourself over and over, is God leading me into this? Is God leading me into this? Because if he ain't, get out. Get out. Victory and temptation is not willingly walking in to it. Verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Zeruah, we're just going to skip that one right there. Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. Remember that verse, verse 6. And so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Sounds good, doesn't it? But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Remember, he said that over and over and over. That's why he doesn't kill Saul, because Saul has been chosen by God to be the king. Whether he likes it or not, whether he's a good king or not, David respects the Lord's will. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So the spear and the jar of water, symbolic of um, life and power. The spear being Saul's power. David's taking it from him. That's what God's been doing from Saul this whole time. Taking power from Saul and he's transferring it over to David. And then that jug of water, that's his life. That's what he's drinking out of. And this whole context of chapter 26 is essentially saying, listen, Saul don't want God. He isn't going to seek God, and he's not going to be used as king by God. David has God's favor because he is constantly submitting to him and finding his life and power and strength from him. Then you see in verse 12, this is a key verse about this whole temptation that we're talking about tonight. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. This is the key. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. That's, how, that's the context for how we know God led David into this. Most of your translations will say something very close. The NLT switches up just a little bit and says, God put them into a deep sleep. So let's stop there. So victors don't willingly walk into temptation, and victors, overcomers, don't drag others into it. They don't drag others into it. So David, he goes, <laughs> he goes from, you know what? I see Saul over there, and I'm not going to kill him. He knows he's not going to kill him, so why even go, right? Why even go? How many times have you said that? Like, I'm not going to get involved with him. I just want to go on a date. No, I'm not, I'm not going to complain or slander or gossip. I'll just go hang out with these ladies for a while. Like, you, you think that you're okay, right? He says, I'm just going to send some spies, 
And then he's like, okay, buddies, Abishai, Ahimelech, who wants to go with me? All the way to, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Don't touch the Lord's anointing. How do you go from, let's just send a few spies to see what Saul's up to, to, we're standing over him. Let's not murder him. You see how quickly, when you walk into temptation, you can go from feeling like you're on steady footing to just swept away. Just swept away. And what does David do? He drags his buddies into it. He drags them. It's one thing to walk into it by yourself. It's another thing to get other people involved. Listen, there, you know, you know that if you want to complain, there's people in your life right now you could call up. might be your mama. might be the kids. It might be your friend. That you know of certain people that if you really wanted to complain and just vent, you know who you'd call. Because they like to complain and vent too. And you got the blind leading the blind. You got the weak leading the weak. And it always leads to failure. There's, there's people that if you wanted to gossip, you would know who to hang out with. You got them in your life and you just know. If I wanted to gossip, I'd go hang out with them because they're cool with it. You don't drag other people into it, especially when you're talking about other people who have the same struggles. Some of us try to minister to others with the same struggles. We find ourselves just struggling together. And in the Christian community, that's become a virtue. That's what, uh, like vulnerability and, and struggling together has been beautiful. And God's saying, listen, that, that's great. This whole relational thing that, that, that we're talking about all the time in the church, that's wonderful, uh, I'm in it. But I want some people who are victorious hanging out with other people who they can help be victorious. Can anyone tell each other how to actually follow me in the midst of temptation and not just relate to me because we struggle with the same thing? We need some victors. We need some victorious people. And here's the hard thing about temptation. Abishai, he sees the opportunity to kill Saul. He sees it as God's hand and favor on David. Isn't that crazy? That's the hard thing about temptation, is sometimes the greatest potential mistakes in our lives are disguised as God's potential blessings. You know, Andy talks about it from time to time, uh, that relationship that you got out of when you were in college or whatever, and then 20 years go down the line, you marry someone else, you look back and see how they're living on Facebook, that person 20 years ago, and you're like, oh my, I'm so glad I did not marry them. That was, that was a potential mistake, and yet in the moment, did you think it was a mistake when you were dating them way back in the day? Now you're thinking, God, why do you hate me? We broke up. I wanted to be with them forever. How much pain did God save you from? Sometimes the biggest mistakes in your life are disguised as potential blessings. But David, knowing what? What got, da what got David through this and what got Jesus through his temptation? The Holy Spirit and knowing God's word. Being able to put your, but remember what the devil was saying to Jesus? Hey, I could give you power. Hey, I could do this for you. Hey, did God really say this? Jesus knew God's word. That's what he was standing on. He was led by God's spirit. But David got friends to go along with him. I, um, I was with uh, a young man on our, our mission trip last week to Michigan. 
we were bouncing from place to place doing ministry in all these different locations in the Upper Peninsula. And there was one place in Menominee, um, Menominee, Michigan, about 50 miles north of Green Bay. Uh, there was this church, this Baptist church that I preached at, and it was a Baptist church slash homeless shelter. And it had probably 35 to, to 50 people in it. And it was just it was just ministry. It was a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing what they're doing up there. But there was one guy who was kind of the, the you know, like in dorms, they have a, uh, what do they call it, a resident. They got a leader who's basically a college kid, but he's living there. Um, and so they had this one young guy who was doing that. He was living at the homeless shelter, and and he was working there but leading the other folks. Well, I had a couple-hour car ride with him because I stayed at the homeless shelter with him one night, and I, I kind of watched his life. And in the in the car, I said, listen, man, I can't help just being at the homeless shelter for the last 24 hours. I can't help but to ask you, how are you doing personally? He said he was living in Vegas for 20 years. Um, he, he was a big dude. He had a thyroid problem. You know, sometimes folks with thyroid issues, they can gain large amounts of weight, like very quickly. So he, he was like 550 pounds, and he'd already lost 100 pounds. And he's just a big dude. He told me that his girlfriend had broken up with him, and he didn't have family around there. And I'm just, I'm asking, I'm saying, tell me, man, how are you doing? You're living in a homeless shelter. You get paid 200 bucks a month. You ain't got no family. He works seven days a week. He said he's on call all the time. It's like, tell me how you are doing personally. Because I know he, he wants to be married. He's telling me about his desire, how much he loved his girlfriend. Maybe some struggle with drugs in the past. I said, how do you keep from just doing stupid things? I mean, because like you're, you're in a place of temptation, struggle. And he said, you know, I got a couple friends in town. Um, that I could hang out with. Uh, they smoked pot, um, and they were people who were in the homeless shelter before that I just connected with, and they live out there. And he said, I know, though, uh, if I wanted to smoke pot, I could call them up at any minute. Like, they, w- they wouldn't stop me. If I said, let's go smoke pot together, they would do it. He said, so I just don't call them. I just don't call them. How tempting. Like, you ain't got nobody but a couple guys you connect with just to hang out with them. But he knows the temptation. He doesn't want to drag them into it. And he knows they would drag him into it. So he just stays alone. Puts himself around some other people. He's made friends with the pastor there. Started going to Bible college online in his spare time. He said, that's what I fill my time with now. I'll tell you what, as a believer... We need to be on a journey, a journey not only to minister to the brokenhearted all the time, but we need to be on a journey in collecting as many godly, spirit-led, spirit-filled friendships that we possibly can. Look at your life. How many people in your life, when you look at friendships, they are, they are spirit-led people. I'm not talking, listen, we, we don't do this like the world anymore. We don't make friends based on just having some commonalities, your age or maybe even your faith. Like that by itself isn't good enough anymore. It's not even good enough just to have church friends. I'm talking about spirit-led friends. You say, well, isn't that church friend? Listen, there's a lot of people you can meet in the church that might not be spirit-led. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of people who come to church for a lot of different reasons. But how many spirit-led people, people who have walked through 
been in temptation, and they can tell you what it looks like to stand on God's word and, and to stand firm, led by his spirit, and they're in tune with the spirit, and they're going to stand back and say, listen, I know I'm not perfect, but I ain't, I'm not falling into that anymore. How many of those kind of people do you have in your life? Like, just be honest. When you look at the people that you hang out with, people you know, how many of them do you feel confident with? Like, is there a David that they could walk up to their greatest? I mean, you've got to believe he's sick and tired of being in the mountains, hiding and running. And yet, he knows God's word is to not kill the Lord. He's in the midst of the biggest temptation. That we're oh, maybe. How many of those people you got in your life? Are you that person to your friends? We don't drag others into it. We need it. Got to have those people. And listen, disciple makers. When you're pouring into someone, I know the insecurities in us. We want people that we're pouring into to kind of be dependent on us. Like we like being mentors. You got to tell the people that you're pouring into, you got to tell them, I love you, but you need more than me. (laughs) I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Holy Spirit. You need as many godly friends as you possibly can. This is what community discipleship looks like. This is the beauty of a grow group. I had one young gal in my grow group the other day tell me, reached out. She said, I'm reaching out to somebody that I had also been reaching out to. She said, I can't go any further. I'm just, this, isn't, this isn't healthy for my family more. Can't do this. And I said, you, you went as far as you could. I'll take it from here. And you know what? Other people are going to come alongside me. and We're going to do this together. That's the beauty of it. You need godly, spirit-led friends who can come and pour in and disciple you and lead you and help you if you want to experience some victory. We don't drag others into it, but we need some folks who will help drag us out of it. Verse 13, Then David went over to the other side, this is another key verse, and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer me? Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, remember, this is, they're all got sleepy eyes. They've been snoozing for a while. Who are you who calls to the king? Probably dark out. And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? I love this. (laughs) I love this. Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Like you're the top dog. You're the commander. Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. And as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord. Of course, when he says Lord, he's talking about King Saul. That would be another term for him. The Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So he's putting Abner in his place. You know, Abner's the one pushing Saul, saying, you got to go kill him. Let's go do it. We could do this. We could do this. And David's like, you, my friend, got issues. I'm about to call you out. Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. Remember, isn't it funny when Saul hates David, he won't even call him by his own name. He just calls him son of Jesse. But then, like, when he's feeling all cuddly, and, and he, you know, then he's like, is this, is this my son? Is this my boy? Because remember, he was married to Michael, and Saul took Michael, even though she was kind of crazy, gave her to someone else. David married some other guy. They got issues. They got issues. 
David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does the Lord, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, verse 19. Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, like Abner, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. Remember, David, in the midst of all this, he's still one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Like, he deserves land. He, he needs promised land. And so he, this isn't just Saul hates him. This is David being split from the inheritance he deserves as part of one of the 12 tribes of Israel saying, go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Partridge being a bird, but the Hebrew word for partridge means one who is calling. So um, David, obviously standing over here, is calling out to Saul. Third thing we see, you want victory victory in temptation you need to address it from a distance you need to address it from a distance so verse 13 shows david's wisdom it shows that david uh, was pretty smart in that it said he went over and a great space was between them so he removed himself from the temptation, he says, I'm going to address Saul from over here. So there's probably a little bit of a valley, and you got the people here, and then you got David standing up over here saying, hey, let's talk from a distance. And then you see David with all kinds of clarity in the situation, right? Like things are, he's, he's, he's addressing Abner, and then he's talking to Saul, and like he, he now has a little bit more of a, a grasp on what's happening, and he's just straight up rebuking Abner, and he's questioning Saul, and he has a little more clarity as he stands back from the situation. He realizes this isn't God who, is, who has done this to me. God's not harming me. How many times have you been in a hard spot, and you thought, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? What's happening, God? And he's realizing, you know what? God isn't the one telling you, Saul, to come after me. It's men, like this Abner, right, just put in his place, just punked Abner. It's guys like him. And you know what? If I did something wrong, then let me offer a sacrifice to God, and let's get on with life. But he's just straight up with clarity addressing the situation. He knows this is Saul, this is the devil, this is the enemy that's doing this. This isn't God trying to kill him. Most of us, I think, I think most of us, we find ourselves trying to fight the battles of temptation too close. And you know you're too close when you fight the same habitual sins and struggles and you let your emotions dictate where you go. You let the drama of the situation overwhelm you. And why? When you get close to something, especially in temptation, when you got your flesh pulling you into the sin, and you get closer and closer and closer, and now you're, you're about to tip over and you're about to fall into sin, and that's when you start to really fight 
And that's when you're the most emotional. That's when you're just torn and you're like, I know I should break up with them, but I just, I, oh, it's been good. We've gone on three dates and it's been amazing. Like you're too close. You're too close to it. And you should have been fighting way back here. This is what maturity in the Christian faith looks like. Sometimes it's backing away and fighting it long before you ever get there. Because you know that pull. Oh, that is an emotional pull. And it's going to be a lot harder to fight it if you're up close. If David doesn't go across the side, he knows Saul's going to come and they're going to hug and whatnot, but it ain't going to be good. He might get killed. You address it from a distance. Sometimes it's just hard to have perspective when you're trying to fight your battles so close. I, um, I spent one of the days in Michigan with uh, this church planner, a wonderful young dude uh, in, a, in a city of four to 5,000, way out in western um, Michigan uh, in the Upper Peninsula. And he had been there about a year and a half with his wife. They'd never planted a church before. They didn't have like a real strategy. They just moved from Virginia out there to plant this church. And uh, it went from just a couple people to 10. Now there's about 15. They're meeting in a storefront. This place is, um, again, four to 5,000 people in this community, but they're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, to give you an idea of, of the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, there's 350,000 people in all of the Upper Peninsula. But the Upper Peninsula is the size of Tennessee. The largest city only has 20,000 people. So this was a big city for the Upper Peninsula. Um, but there still weren't many people. And there was drugs and just a lot of oppression in this area. And we had a couple hours in the car. We had a lot of driving. We had a couple hours, and he was telling me about all this stuff. And he, he was sharing these stories about his first year and a half on the ground planting this church. And he was saying, he told me um, that some of the people were having a struggle with his own mom. His mom was part of the church plant, and she was uh, more traditional and kind of judged some of the, the folks who were addicted to drugs, and they didn't dress like her, and they didn't act like her. And, and people would say to him, that lady's making me feel uncomfortable. Like, she just looks at me just mean when I walk in. And, and he said he would talk to his mom about it, and she didn't quite get it. And then he said eventually, <laughs> eventually, he kicked his mom out of the church said, Mom, you either need to straighten up or you need to get out. And she got out. And I was like, what? <laughs> I shook my head. And of course, he drive me out in the middle of nowhere, so I got to be careful what I'm saying to him. I don't, I don't know who this old boy is. I said, yeah, yeah, you kicked your mama out of the church? Like, I, <laughs> I said, listen, I love you. I mean, I, I just know you from just a, a little bit, but uh, you got to know. In love, I'm saying, you got a great personality that's aggressive and wonderful for church planning, but you need to know the devil can use that to make some bad decisions and maybe some rash decisions. And so just pull back a little bit. And he's like, oh, oh maybe I shouldn't have kicked my mom out of the church. And he goes on and tells me more about life. And we had all kinds of crazy situations. One time uh, we had about an hour-long conversation uh, the next morning about his, his views. He was a, he's a veteran. And I said, like most uh, who want to be respectful of the veterans, I said, thanks for serving, man, because I view he served in my place, and um, I'm thankful for freedom, and uh, and he said, why do you thank me? And I was like, okay, <laughs> I don't know, you know, um, because, man, I think it, it helps protect our freedom. He says, you think my service really had anything to do with protecting your freedom? You've been in Afghanistan and whatnot? I said, this is weird. For the next hour plus, 
he's telling me his views on the government and how he's now an anarchist and how he, he wants no government, no laws, and he thinks that if Christians are, are truly Christians, they don't need the law of the land to help keep things in place. We had a long discussion, but I had to tell him because he's so passionate about it. I had to tell him about halfway through. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. let me tell you, let me say this. No, when you're in a little town and you got one reputation, I said, please tell me that you have not told anyone else about your views about this. He said, I'll talk about it once in a while. I said, please, don't ever, <laughs> ever, under any circumstances, bring this up in a sermon or, or to anyone in that town. Because you ain't going to win anybody to Jesus. I said, the whole anarchy thing, whatever, it, who cares? It's not that big of a deal that that's what you think. It's not like that's going to happen anyway. But you ain't going to win anybody to the Lord. People are going to think that's weird. See, this is what happens when you are isolated and you're so close in the battle and, and you don't have perspective. You've got to have people who can help pull you away. But maturity, again, is you being able to push yourself away a little bit and say, you know what? I, uh, I can't think clearly. I got, I got myself questioning the truth. I got my emotions overwhelming me. I need to pull out of this environment. Got to get away. That's why, like, all of us love, <laughs> we love materialism, and we love uh, capitalism, and we love the American dream until we go to a third world country on a mission trip. And then we come back, and we're like, how could I have lived that way? Because you finally got out of it for a second. Maturity is removing yourself from it just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's not good. If I counsel somebody who struggles with greed, and yet in the midst of our counsel, they're telling me how they're still applying for new jobs with better pay. How they keep looking at Zillow every night, looking for new homes. That perfect country home that they got to live in. Trying to upgrade their vehicles. This happens. I talk to people. I'm like, you can't, you can't be talking about this if you're still in the midst of it. You're, so, you're too close. All the time I'm talking to young folks. Just dating. Sometimes we'll be in the midst of talking about dating issues and, and God's making it clear to them they just shouldn't be in a relationship right now or maybe they, they've got a history of just choosing uh, bad relationships and yet they're still on dating websites all the time. And for those of you who, are, who haven't hung out in the dating world uh, for a while, because this is new to me, but there are a million websites and apps for dating nowadays, things I don't even know about. It's just, it's just right there at your fingers. You can go to a new town and find people all around you just doing a day trip to Kansas City. I mean, you can't, you, can't, you can't be doing that if you've got those struggles. You can't get so close. On the flip side, I'll say this. On the flip side, it's not simply resisting in the midst of the battle, pulling away so that you can clear your head. It's recognizing proactively what is going to be a battle and staying far away from beginning. Let me give you an example. Uh, church policy here. If you're full-time staff here at Crosspoint, one of the things is you cannot, if you're a male or female, you cannot be in the car alone with another male or female uh, if one of you is married, right? Um, not that we don't trust, but we know we've been along, around long enough. It don't lead to anything good. And so you see it from a distance and you say, you know what? I'm going to address it from way over here before we even get into it. That's what maturity looks like. You'll notice, for some folks, there's a good kind of drama that comes with maturity. A drama where you jump into other people's mess, um, and, and you're a disciple maker, and you're helping them. But there is another kind of drama that is unhealthy, and you see that mature Christians don't tend to have this drama. 
And that's the drama of getting themselves into these messes and having to deal with them over and over for the rest of their lives. They work out of that because the Holy Spirit leads them to address this stuff at a distance and not be uh, falling prey to the devil's tricks as much as we did when we were first believers. Last but not least, verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David. We've heard this before. For I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the, this is key, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Now, these are the last recorded words between Saul and David before Saul dies. So this is, this is, this is kind of important. The Lord rewards every man for his faith, righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Remember, uh, Paul in Galatians says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. David saying the same thing. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. So tribulation, again, is another word for trial, another word for testing, temptation that we're talking about. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the last time we see recorded that they are together. And Saul finally, at the end of his life, says something true. David, just blessed, man. You get it. Get it. Last thing we see. If you want to be victorious in temptation, don't ever trust it. We're talking about sin. Or don't get comfortable with it. Don't get comfortable. Here's the key in those few verses. David sees Saul giving him the lip service again. I'm sorry. Let's be friends again. Let's hug it out, bro. Like he wants to do that again. And what does David say? Here's your spear, man. Send one of your young, young dudes over here to get it. I'm not coming over. I'm not doing this again. I'm not doing this again. He's wise. Sometimes I think when you and I think of forgiveness, when we think of making up reconciliation, that like we got to be best friends with people, that, that we got to, uh, if we've overcome something, that we can hang around whoever at any time, that we can just do things. Listen to me. There are situations, there are people in your life that it will probably never be healthy for you to be around. When I was a young man, before I followed Jesus and I had horrible relationships with young gals, I could tell you most of those relationships, at some point after all of the mess and then some time had passed, at some point I picked up the phone or they picked up the phone or we had a Facebook message saying, hey, how you doing? After everything calmed down, it might take a year, two or three. There's something in you, even back then when I was a non-believer, something in me said, don't, <laughs> don't get involved. There, even as a leader in ministry, there are people that I love, that I want to serve, but I have had encounters with, and I just kind of know, you know what? They're being sanctified in this, or I'm being sanctified. We're, we're growing, but it's just not going to be healthy for us to be best friends. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to trust in you with certain things. Of course, that would be nobody in this room, right? But you just know that. You just know that. 
a young dude struggling with pornography, he might get to the point where he's like, you know what, I, I think I, I trust being alone, and I trust being able to search things on the computer without stumbling into that. Don't get comfortable with it. Don't try. Don't try. Sometimes sin likes to go dormant and get really quiet so that you get used to coming back into the room with it and hanging out with it and feeling like you can coexist with it. Listen, to resist sin is beautiful, but sometimes the wisest thing, the most spirit-led thing, is to just remove it altogether and to not even go there, to say, I'm just going to give up certain things in my life. If I can't have healthy relationships right now, I just ain't going to even dive into the dating world. If I can't talk to the people at work without slander and gossip and complaining, I'm just not going to be able to have conversations for a while. The Lord's going to have to sanctify me before I jump in. And maybe I'll never jump into some of those things again. But you say, well, the removal thing, that's kind of a cop-out, right? No. You see, that's part of a reflection of things to come because when Jesus died on the cross, he, he conquered death and sin and he freed us from the punishment of our past sins, the power of our current potential sin, and he will free us and give us deliverance from the presence of all future sin. When we see him in heaven, there will be no testing, there will be no temptation, there will be no trials and tribulations. We're going to be uh, removed from our sin. So on earth, when you find yourself just removing yourself from certain situations, that is a beautiful reflection of what one day we will experience in heaven. It's not sad. It's not a cop-out to say, well, you just can't handle it. Victory isn't always standing over it saying, boom, I conquered it. Victory is standing back saying, Jesus gave me the ability to stand back and not even, not even get into it. Sometimes that's the wisest thing. Don't embrace temptation, but don't fear it. Know God's word so you can stand firm in it. Make sure you're not willingly walking into it, but if the Lord leads you into it, know that it can be used, not again as a mile marker for your failures, but it can be used to show God's power and glory as you depend on His Spirit, as you're led by His Spirit, and as you see, His Spirit is more powerful than your flesh. He can get glory in the midst of your temptation. I'll end by saying this. First John, as we get into that book here in a, in a few months, one of the terms that he addresses the church in, labor-friendly, is overcomers. You who have overcome. Are you an overcomer? Sometimes that feels a little cocky, doesn't it? I think the church needs more overcomers. In Jesus, you can claim to be an overcomer. You get to walk and experience victory being led by his spirit. When you leave here tonight, you need to know you don't resist temptation by focusing on temptation. You resist temptation by finding something better in Jesus. There is no temptation that has seized you except what is common to man. But God has given you a way out. And that way out can be very practical, but theologically, that way out is realizing whatever that sin is lying to you about, saying it has to offer you, saying it can fulfill in you. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. You need to taste that he is better.
find that there's some temptations that just aren't temptations anymore. Let's pray.